3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen lands and the waters of the Wurundjeri and Bungarong peoples of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We recognise the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. QCR at 5am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good How... morning, Grace. Good morning, Patrick. How are you all? Very good, thank you. Um, it's, it's The weather's getting nice and warm, isn't it, at the moment? Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> a bit too warm, though. <laughs> yeah, a bit too warm, a bit too soon. We'll go on to that uh, no. later as well. Um, but yeah, today it's a bit different. Um, as you know, Melbourne really loves to switch it up because today and tomorrow will be pretty cold compared to... The last week. Yeah, because I think it's going to rain actually this morning, so that's probably why it's getting cold again. But yeah, I'm actually quite looking forward to the summer weather just because I don't like the cold. So yeah. How are you, Patrick? How was your weekend? How's your week been so far? Uh, very busy, Grace. Uh, mm-hmm. went, across the region, uh, went, went across the regional Victoria uh, recently, so uh, went up to the Murray, um, which was very nice. Uh, so that was, that was good fun. Um, so... Um, you know, like just got to see all the, the good things out there in the, the Murray and uh, highly recommend to go to Swan Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, saw the Michael Wilson AFL expedition as a sports nut and some great photos uh, there. So highly recommend for listeners, if you're going to the Murray, go to Swan Hill, go to the Swan Hill Art Regional ex- Art Regional um, Centre and you can check out all the nice photos and art exhibition. But... We'll get on, and there's a bit of a big day today. We've got a few few interesting stuff. Grace, just tell me what you've got on for your interview coming up. Yeah, so I spoke with Anne Breedman, who is a writer from Berlin, Australia. They are also an editor and ceramicist, so we discussed about how the storytelling and knowledge transfer better help protect trans people. So, yep, looking forward to that. Very interesting. Now, Sonera, you you've got something very nice for me. I like submarines. Tell me about it. Yes. Uh, well, we're going to be talking about some new, uh, the nuclear submarines that um, Australia are building for AUKUS. And just AUKUS in, in regards to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and how there's a loophole being exploited in that treaty, as well as whether the, uh, Australia should sign the Nuclear Ban Treaty to prohi- prohibit nuclear weapons. And that's uh, with Dr. Monique Cormier, who is a, a lecturer at Monash Faculty of Law. Yes, um, and also we'll be uh, hearing from an interview from uh, the show Strong Spirit, where Rob speaks to Keen Mundine, uh, who's a principal consultant and founder of Deadly Connections. We also will be speaking at 8.10. Uh, I will be uh, having a live interview with the Mayor of Juni as a Senate inquiry into regional bank closures uh, heads to the small town in the Riverina region of New South Wales. 
But Sanera, you've got the headlines for me. What's going on in the news? So first of all, um, in the weather today, uh, well, yesterday actually, the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, the Bureau of Meteorology formally confirmed El Nino um, will be here, and this means that Australia will face drier conditions over the summer as global weather records continue to tumble. According to the Bureau of Meteorology's Dr. Carl Braganza, El Nino is expected to last until late summer or early autumn. So those who are living in the nation's southeast, including Victoria, have been advised to prepare for a summer of fire and heat hazards. However, the Bureau of Meteorology also added that the landscape was not as dry as it had been leading into the catastrophic fires of 2019 and 2020. And then to something more international, Canada accuses India of murder behind alleged assassination of a Sikh leader. Canadian President Justin Trudeau claims India is responsible for the shooting of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Sikh leader on Canadian soil. The Canadian Prime Minister told the House of Commons of Canada on Monday that in recent weeks, national security authorities had been probing allegations that New Delhi was behind a state-sponsored assassination. Trudeau says any involvement of foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is unacceptable is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. However, India's ministry has rejected the claims and any of their involvement in of violence in Canada as absurd. In June, Nijar was shot and killed in front of the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara in Surrey, British Columbia. He was a strong advocate of the Khalistan movement, which seeks an independent homeland for Sikhs in India's Punjab region. New Delhi had alleged that the plan uh, alleged that the Sikh leader was involved in a plan to murder a Hindu priest in Punjab in exchange for a bounty offer of twelve thousand dollars. Hence, the fatal shooting that uh, led many to accuse India of playing a role in the killing. Thanks very much, Sanira, for those headlines. We will come back with Grace's segment very soon. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We're going to be diving into a conversation with M. Rickman, who is a writer from Belu, Australia. You're also an editor and ceramicist. And we basically discussed about how the storytelling and knowledge transfer better help protect trans people. And it's also in, in regards to the discussion with about a documentary that came out in 7 News that 
talked about the detransitioning of trans people, which is in a way degrading them. And so yeah, we basically did a discussion with that. So let's take a listen. So joining me this morning is M Riemann, a writer from Berlu, Australia. Good morning, M. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. How are you? Good. Good. So nice of you to join us this early morning. So M,、um, you wrote an article in regards to how does storytelling and knowledge better、uh, knowledge transfer help better protect trans people? And there was this documentary, seven news documentary that you mentioned in it. What was what was it about when when it was released about two weeks ago? Yeah. So Seven News released their documentary through their Spotlight segment.、Um, it was titled "Detransitioners,"、um, uh, detransitioning. Sorry.、Uh, and、uh, their aim of the documentary was to、um, supposedly shed light on this huge number of young people who are being influenced or being manipulated into.、Um, Being trans and going on hormones and getting gender affirming surgery,、um, but then aging out of it supposedly, mm. Mm. and、uh, that was、uh, in in Seven News's view、uh, and the Spotlight Channel's view,、um, the fault of adult、um, trans people、uh, telling their stories of gender affirmation online, and they used a bunch of videos of people、um, who had shared their stories online. Uh, and sort of made them look like they regretted their gender affirmation, which they didn't. And many of them came online later to clarify that Seven News used their、um, content without asking, and also twisted the meaning of it.、Mm, I see. And obviously, this is—it's a really bad kind of, I guess, in, influence and. Mindset towards people when they, if they want to try to understand trans people better. So how how has this impacted the trans community? Yeah,、um, quite quite impactfully. I think to have a documentary that is so watched by so many people, it's on the you know main news channel. It、mm. aired on Sunday night,、um, influencing a huge number of people. In you know for for many of them, might be some of the first information they receive. About trans and gender diverse people, it's really damaging, and to have so many sort of blatant mistruths and、um, accusations sort of rallied towards trans people who are just sort of sharing their stories online, talking about you know their process of going、mm. on hormones or changing their legal name,、Mm-mm. things that are you know very individual, very you know normal things that trans and gender diverse people do. To say that that is、uh, manipulating young children—it's such a terrible,、um, such a terrible lie to sort of spread around,、um, and it really, yeah, negatively portrayed trans people as these calculated manipulators, which we really aren't.、Um, not to say that I can speak on behalf of everybody, but it's,、um, yeah, I think it was it was really. Underwhelming to see from Channel Seven. Yeah, it's just not a good. A good way to help understand trans is is definitely not a good way to help understand trans people, and just putting something out there so detrimenting and degrading in a way as well is it's not gonna help people help people understand the LGBTQ community basically. I agree.、Mm. Yeah, I think it really wasn't a holistic look、mm. at the trans community. They didn't interview any people who were trans. They interviewed a de transitioner. 
which is, you know, that's a, a valid experience in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then a number of people commenting on that who aren't a part of either of those communities. And, you know, I think if you wanted to have a, you know, chat about, you know, transness mm. and people, you know, finding information, absolutely. But let's have it on a level playing field. Mm, exactly. And especially when the media is supposed to be neutral, which is the whole point of putting Allegedly. news out there <laughs> of public interest. Yeah. So it's just really awful. And I, so now it comes to the big question of how does storytelling and knowledge help protect trans people you mentioned that it's a comedy of practice and so at the moment how does peer-to-peer support get you the knowledge you needed uh, in relation to gender affirming uh, gender affirmation surgery yeah um so that's something that i've, I've just had surgery about a month ago now mm. uh, and that process um was made so much easier by all of the people around me and all of the people that I, you know, knew online who shared information about how they felt before and after and who they went to go and see and how to prepare and what to, you know, think about when you're like, not what to think about, but how to, you know, for example, meal prep while you're recovering and you can't lift your arms. Like it's very practical advice for a surgery that doesn't have a ton of information about it all the time. Like Mm -hmm. there's information, for example, um, I received information about breast reductions, but they didn't, it didn't really um, encapsulate the sort of radical nature of the procedure that I was having done. And I think, you know, my um, medical team did really well in comparison to a lot of other things that I heard, but I went into that. What is a very major surgery feeling very prepared and feeling very ready um, and feeling like I had a really good understanding of the situation, how much it was going to cost, how much it might hurt, how much I'll, you know, how long I'll take to recover, setting my expectations really clearly so I could go into this process feeling very secure in all the decisions I'd made. And I couldn't have done that without, you know, my mates who have had gender affirming surgery or people who I've you know, mm. followed mine for a long time who have supported me through other things like how to wear a binder properly and, um, you know, how to talk to people about, you know, your name changing and mm. things like that um, or shortening or, or, you know, trying to get people to respect who you are and explain that. Um, that it's been so valuable and I it hurts to think that that is being framed as something that would have like manipulated me, even though I was an adult Mm. the entire time. Um, And it also, um, yeah, I think that is, is the real protector is that we really get to share our stories. And not only do we get to see people having um, gender affirming care or, you know, socially or medically, you also get to see people being happy afterwards and Mm. leading full lives like uh, a friend of mine who's had top surgery is just back to posting pictures about being a dad and his writing and going for walks and he's just living a full and very happy life and actually that's I guess what all anyone wants out of this it's just to correct that incongruence you feel within yourself and then get on with living a very normal and happy life which is what you know, what all I could want for Mm -hmm. myself and other trans people. So I think 
yeah, I mm. I think that's how it helps is that storytelling really demystifies a lot of the medical information. And I also think it's really important to have hope in these sort of situations. Mm. Um, and, and that's what people telling their stories can give other people. Mm. But I guess also, I think one, one thing people would kind of still kind of question and doubt whenever they listen to stories, what made, what made you trust and really ensure that what you were uh, listening to were doable guidance and safe to follow? If, like, obviously, because, I mean, even though your friends have mentioned that they've done the surgery and it went really well, but how were you sure that you could really trust and ensure the process that you were going to take is safe? Yeah, um, I think that there's a couple of points to that. I think, first of all, the safety of any medical procedure um, is the responsibility of the person, like, to the person taking it to mm. do their own due diligence, do their own research, make sure that they're ready mm. um, and understand all of the risks and costs and things like that. Mm. I think... Um, I don't think anyone's ever giving step-by-step um, -step advice of go to this surgeon, do this specific thing. Like I think sharing the story of getting top surgery is different than um, like people obviously need to do their own research on how um, every medical procedure is different and how mm -hmm. it would affect them. Um but I think it can be made easier by being told about, you know, reputable surgeons that you've had a really positive experience with. Mm. People can't choose that person or they can go somewhere else. That's their decision. But I think having as much information as possible is really helpful. And, um, you know, for example, those reviews of a surgeon are something that might help you inform your decision. The results of that surgeon might help you um, inform that decision, speaking about top surgery specifically. Um, your consultation and the demeanour of the surgeon might help you to make that decision. Um, but I think the information being shared, it's not necessarily the responsibility of the person sharing that information to decide who receives it, um, mm -hmm. whether that's the right decision for them. That's the individual's responsibility. Where am I going with this? Yes. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, no worries. So it's basically making sure like you are, you know what you're you're researching into, you know what you're getting into, and as long as you feel assured and you feel confident that what you're getting is truth, truthful, and then you're willing to take the risk and go for it, then that's that's all that matters. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. I think it's um I think it's information building, not decision making. Mm. Um, but people sharing their stories is something that can add to the collection of information building and knowledge sharing that can help someone to inform their decision. Mm. Um, and I think lots of us would look to for any other um, any other medical procedure to people who have had the procedure and are doing well. Yep. Um, yeah. No, you encapsulated that really well. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. It's all good. So, and I guess now it just it comes to this big question that really, why, why are the transphobes so scared? and affected by all these? Why are they so scared of someone making a own decision for their own body? Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's a shame that people who are transphobic have such an issue with people being themselves. Um, mm. And I think it speaks a lot to their character. Um, 
I think what really uh, worries transphobes about sharing stories of this nature is seeing people happy, seeing people well, seeing people living the life that they want to live. It really disrupts the narrative uh, that transness is dangerous and transness is dirty and transness makes people hate themselves when it does the exact opposite for so many people. Mm. Uh, and so I think uh, every time somebody is sharing their story and talking about their experience and that being a positive experience rather than a traumatic experience or something that they regret, that really discredits the narrative that's being put forward, that it's a trend, it's a phase, you'll uh, regret it. Like all of their fear tactics are very much disrupted by people sharing their stories mm. and showing people that it is very, very possible and very, very normal to have this kind of dysphoria about your body. If you want to correct it, there are avenues. If you choose one of those avenues, you'll be all right. Mm. You're going to, you know, do your research, find a trusted medical professional, you know, follow, follow that path, you know, and if that corrects your way you feel about your body then that is fantastic um but that kind of story would enable people to get the care that they need and i think people who are transphobic who are seeking to limit gender affirming care don't want those stories out there because they they dispel everything that they're trying to say about trans people which i think is very much why um no one was asked for permission to share their video and no one was asked on to the documentary um, to speak about it um, because giving people the opportunity to tell their stories is not something that they are interested in doing. Mm. They just want to push whatever agenda they have that's, that, that they want to put out there in regards to trans people, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it's very much um, a narrative that they've constructed mm. and unfortunately for them... Um, it's it's not true. Mm. Um, I think they really want it to be true, but it's it's really not based in reality, and that's um, that's why they are seeking to limit those stories. Yeah. So, and um, unfortunately, we're actually running out of time. But just want to get one last question for you. With with all this, and in, in regards to storytelling, what what do you want the listeners to really understand about the trans people? in wanting to tell the stories, what, what, what do you think listeners should really know? I think that all of us, like everybody listening, has somebody that they look up to, has somebody that's a role model. People have people who are very influential in their lives. I think those are really important. I think I have a lot of people who I really look up to, who you know I really admire, um, who are role models for me and for my community. And I think we all deserve that, mm. um, trans people as well. Um, I think we deserve to see people who look like us being successful and being happy, um, no matter who you are. I think that's a really powerful thing um, and a really motivating thing. Um, so why why should we limit that? Why should that be taken away for trans people? Um, I think that's really what I want to hone home is we've all got role models, um, trans people included. Awesome. Thank you so much, Em, for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. And that was me speaking to M. Reedman, who is a writer from Belo, Australia. M. has also published in Anika Press the suburb and the Suburban Review. And if you want to read more of her article in regards to this discussion, you can head to Overland and look for A Committee of Practice, How Storytelling and Knowledge Transfer Protect Trans People. So yeah, thank you so much, M, for joining us. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast at 8.55am. It is now currently 7.25am. So now heading on to defence and the military... It's been two years since the trilateral security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, also known as AUKUS, which was announced uh, or also known as AUKUS was announced for the purpose of deterring Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific region. And in March this year, the partners announced their plans for building nuclear-powered submarines, which will cost Australia up to $368 billion. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is an international treaty for the purpose of preventing the spread of nuclear weapons and technology. The treaty was signed by 71 countries, including the UK, US and Australia, and became effective in 1970. The AUKUS scheme is the first time that a loophole from the Non-Proliferation Treaty is being used to transfer nuclear technology from a nuclear weapons state like America to a non-weapons state like Australia. I was joined by Dr. Monique Cormier, Senior Lecturer at Monash Faculty of Law, to talk about this as well as the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which aspires to prohibit nuclear weapons altogether. I know the AUKUS deal has been all over the news this year, but for listeners who may be unfamiliar, let's first talk about the significance of AUKUS and why it's been considered controversial? Like, what exactly are the critics fearing here? Yeah, so AUKUS, which is um, a trilateral security uh, relationship document between the US, Australia and the UK, um, obviously it got a lot of media when it was first announced. um, And... Look, the main thing that has, I think, been controversial is the fact that Australia will be um, getting nuclear-powered submarines as part of this deal. And so the reason why that's so controversial is the sort of the nuclear-powered aspect of it and the fact that no, like, so the UK and the US have never shared their nuclear propulsion technology with any other state apart from each other before. So that's um, that's sort of, you know, a first. And the reason why that's quite controversial is no, no country that doesn't have nuclear weapons has ever had 
nuclear propulsion technology before either. And so there was a lot of concern um, uh, about, well, what is this going to mean in relation to nuclear weapon proliferation? And while Australia has, um, you know, given a lot of assurances that don't worry, this is, we're not going to be, you know, this is not nuclear weapons, it's nuclear propulsion, there are nevertheless some some general concerns about the fact that uh, this could potentially be seen as a precedent for other countries to, you know, acquire weapons-grade nuclear material that gets used for the nuclear propulsion system. And the concern is that that might be diverted into the creation of nuclear weapons. And I can talk a little bit more about that if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, on that note, um, you know, US President Joe Biden also said that the submarines will be nuclear powered and not nuclear armed. Um, Does this mean that there is really a difference? Yeah, it is quite a big difference. So nuclear armed means that they have nuclear weapons, actual nuclear weapons on board. And that is um, only a very small number of states have nuclear weapons. There are nine in total that have them. Um, five of them are officially allowed to have them, which are US, UK, China, France, and Russia, um, and under international law. And so nuclear propulsion is different. And I, I'm definitely not a nuclear technical specialist at all, so I have no idea how it actually works, but it just means that the submarines are powered by a nuclear reactor. And from everything I've heard, it means that they can, they can uh, be deployed for a much, much longer period of time, like years and years, without having to be refueled. And so that's a huge, I guess, strategic advantage um, for Australia, particularly uh, in sort of uh, a situation in which they're concerned about the rise of China. And so where there is, so there, there is a huge difference, and that's what, you know, a lot of the, the AUKUS uh, uh, spokespeople have been at pains to really point out but the problem is the way that the international legal regulation system works in relation to nuclear material is that and this is this is sort of where some of the controversy has come in uh, the main the main treaty that is all about um, nuclear weapons and disarming and trying to sort of uh, reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world that main treaty which is called the nuclear non-proliferation treaty it actually it sort of is very silent on this idea of nuclear propulsion technology. And that was deliberate. So it's it's kind of what's called a loophole because part of the nuclear um, non-proliferation treaty, it requires states to, well, it, it, I'm not sure if it actually requires, I think it does, no, it requires states to um, uh, introduce um, or come up with an agreement to with the International Atomic Energy Agency, so that's called the IAEA, which basically has to, um, you know, has the right to inspect any state that is using nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. So the idea behind the nuclear, uh, the non-proliferation uh, treaty was that these five states, the ones that I mentioned before, they can have nuclear weapons no one else can. And in exchange, you can use nuclear technology for peaceful purposes, as long as you allow the IAEA to verify and inspect 
that you're only doing it for peaceful purposes. And so where this sort of loophole in relation to nuclear propulsion comes in is it allows for states who are going to be using nuclear nuclear power, sorry, or nuclear material, not for nuclear weapons, but if they're going to use it for military purposes, then certain military purposes, so they're not allowed to use, so states like Australia cannot under international law use nuclear material for, to, you know, build a nuclear weapon. Australia is not allowed to do that under international law. What Australia can do is have nuclear material and it can withdraw that material from the IAEA safeguard inspection system if it's being used for a military purpose. And so that's the concern because no no state has ever done that before. That's this is the first time it, it's it's written into the laws, but for you know 50 odd, nearly 60 years, no state has ever done it. So Australia will be the first state to remove nuclear, like weapons grade nuclear material from the international inspection system. And so the concern is not that Australia is going to, you know, secretly make its own nuclear weapon or anything like that. And, you know, in fact, the US and the UK have actually said Australia is not actually going to have access to any of our nuclear material. It's going to be basically locked inside these submarines. Australia is going to have zero access to it. So that's not such a concern. But the concern is that, well, if Australia is doing it, why won't other states do it? Russia, for example, has high a weapons grade uranium. What's to stop Russia from sort of offering, you know, oh, here we can have let you we can give you sort of this technology for your own nuclear propelled submarines, and so perhaps some states that aren't quite as um, good international citizens as Australia claims to be, maybe those states might actually then very legally, very lawfully remove that material from inspections but then illegally um, divert it to nuclear weapons. So that's that's the kind of the main concern. It's, it's a poor precedent. It's it's perfectly legal what Australia is doing, but it's, it's not a good thing to be doing after 60 years where we've had these laws and all of a sudden Australia is the first one to say, actually, we're going to invoke this loophole. Mm, I was actually going to ask you that, you know, does this um, loophole set a precedent and seems like it might because you know there's fears um that like it allows the hiding of you know weapons grade uranium and the dangers of that and just go getting back to the international atomic energy agency um they will that they said that they will inspect the nuclear powered submarines built um in australia um Will that actually help in mitigating the risks that could come with exploiting this loophole? So what what it means is so Australia and the um the IAEA are going to, and they may have already done so, um, come up with a kind of a new inspection arrangement. Um, and so you know the idea being that Australia is saying, you know cards on the table, we're going to do this above board. We're going to do it as best as we can. I think, I think they're still going to be limited because of the fact that um, the UK and the US are not keen for the IAEA to inspect their nuclear technology. So the IAEA will probably inspect the actual submarines and to make sure that nothing's been tampered with, that you know, Australia hasn't tried to get, get at the, the, the nuclear material. And that's great, right? So that is also a, a positive precedent that Australia is setting. Um, but there's, I guess, no guarantee that another state 
will will do the same because it's that's a purely voluntary thing that that Australia um, is doing. Well, Australia is, is obliged to come up with some some sort of uh, arrangement with the IAEA, and it's it's kind of a guess going a little bit um, uh, further than what it actually needs to, which is great. But there's no guarantee that other countries would necessarily do the same. And so that's kind of why I and a lot of uh, anti-nuclear campaign campaigners think that one of the one of the best things that Australia could do is to join the um, the nuclear ban treaty because that would also because again under the nuclear ban treaty there's nothing that says you can't have nuclear propulsion nuclear propulsion in and of itself is is not uh, the problem. And so if Australia joined the ban treaty, then that would almost that would almost counteract the problem, right? It would sort of say, okay, for other states, if you also want to get yourself uh, a nuclear propelled submarine um, and you want to sort of withdraw your material from the inspection safeguards, well, then look what we did. We actually joined the ban treaty because that's like an additional layer of guaranteed um, safety. Yeah, so... About the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, it's, um, as far as I know, it's a bit different from the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Can you just explain, uh, expand on it a bit more? Yeah. So, um, as I said before, the the non uh, the yeah the Non-Proliferation Treaty that's been around since nineteen uh, late late sixties and came into force in nineteen seventy, and it's got a lot. Most it's got sort of one hundred and ninety one states parties so it's it's very kind of a comprehensive treaty and it doesn't it allows certain states to have nuclear weapons and it's kind of all about but we need to work towards reducing them we need to work towards sort of disarming and um, non-proliferation and it's sort of I mean it's success it's it was relatively successful for a little while, but it's really stagnated. Like we still have, you know, 50 odd, actually it's more than that. Yeah, no, it's about 50, 50 years later, we still have nuclear weapons. And so um, it's it's obviously, um, it's it's had its day. And so this is why a lot of nuclear ban advocates were really quite keen to, you know, let's do this once and for all and actually ban nuclear weapons. Let's get rid of them. Let's do something. And so, you know, it's the Ban Treaty, which is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, it's a comprehensive multilateral treaty, uh, open to any and all states. And the ultimate aim would be for it to be a universal treaty um, with, you know, obviously as many, as many states as possible adhering to the ban. And then, um, of course, as soon as a state is party to a treaty, it's bound by its terms. And so just an example, um, Article 1 of the Ban Treaty forbids states from um, developing, testing, producing, manufacturing, acquiring, possessing, stockpiling, transferring, uh, receiving, using, or threatening to use um, nuclear weapons. And so that's it's pretty comprehensive. Like you can't do anything with nuclear weapons. It also prevents any states' parties from um, assisting or encouraging other states to do any of those things. So um, at this stage, there's uh, 68 parties. It, it only came into force uh, a few years ago. Um, so it's it's and I guess one of the things at the moment is that it doesn't no state that has nuclear weapons is uh, a party to the treaty, obviously, because they want to keep their nuclear weapons and they are absolutely not allowed to do so. They can join, but they, if they joined it, they would have to 
immediately come up with a concrete plan to re reduce and get rid of their weapons within a certain time frame, and that would be um, verifi verified as well. And with the way all this is going with AUKUS, what are the chances that Australia will sign the nuclear bans treaty? So it's interesting because uh, Labor has always been quite, you know, uh, anti-nuclear. It's been very pro the ban treaty and it's um, often uh, espousing this idea that, yes, in power, Labor will sign and ratify the nuclear ban treaty, but they have some pretty strong caveats. And um, it's sort of, these caveats are, are not particularly um they're not particularly uh, helpful, I suppose. They they are more about things like, well, we'll we'll join the ban. We will join the ban treaty, but we need to be able to take into account, um, you know, encouraging the universe like universal membership of it, or we need to make sure that it's compatible with the NPT, which is the Nuclear uh, Non Proliferation Treaty, which it is, or we need to make sure that it's going to be um, fine. Its verification system is is okay. Which it is, it's it's stronger than the NPTs, or it strengthens the NPTs, and so these are kind of just excuses, really, because the main reason why Australia doesn't want to join the ban treaty, and under any government, coalition or Labor, is because under the ban treaty, Australia cannot maintain its security policy of extended nuclear deterrence. Um, so extended nuclear deterrence is. Um, like that's one of its key international security policies. So nuclear deterrence is the doctrine that, you know, it's mutual mutually assured destruction. So if a state has the capacity to mount a nuclear attack, then other states are going to think twice about, you know, any aggression towards that state. Um, so having this kind of nuclear arsenal should, in theory, be enough to, um, you know, deter other states from attacking it. And then extended nuclear deterrence is when a country with nuclear weapons would conceivably use or threaten to use those nuclear weapons uh, in defense of another country. So Australia has extended nuclear deterrence in particular in relation uh, to the US. So it's it's what we say is it's under the US nuclear umbrella. Um, and therefore we can theoretically rely on the US to threaten to use its nuclear weapons on Australia's behalf. Now, the US has almost never actually confirmed this, but Australia, it's very clearly um, written in Australian policy. And um, I think I think it's, it's very likely that this is the relationship and this is how uh, Australia and the US see the relationship. So um, Australia is sort of so committed to this nuclear umbrella status that means that it can't join the ban treaty because the treaty is purposely incompatible with the idea of extended nuclear deterrence. Um, the treaty pre prevents states from um, assisting or encouraging the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons. And so, you know, even though Australia is not possessing them, the idea that it is encouraging um, the US to maintain its nuclear weapons because it needs them itself would be at odds with the nuclear uh, ban treaty. So I think I don't see Australia joining the nuclear ban treaty anytime soon. The good thing is that Labor has at least engaged with the ban treaty, whereas under the coalition, there was a complete, um, you know, uh, they, just, they just ignored it, essentially, boycotted any meetings, anything uh, at the international level. As, under Labor, Australia is now 
actually going to these meetings and um, is actually sort of, at least in theory, Labor says it supports the ban treaty. But I think what frustrates me a little bit is that it doesn't acknowledge the fact that it's still so heavily reliant on extended nuclear deterrence that that and that alone really not these not these sort of other reasons that it often gives in public but the nuclear umbrella issue that alone is the reason why it will not be joining the ban treaty anytime soon um well thank you so much for talking to me monique um is there anything just before you go is there anything you'd like our listeners to know look there's one other thing that i i've been thinking about lately is and Again, I'm not the expert in this, but from everything I've read, the idea is that these nuclear submarines are going to take a long time before we can get them, right? So it's going to be apparently 10 years is the estimate. And then so others are saying, well, within 10 years, the technology is going, other sort of technology is going to effectively make oceans transparent. So they're going to be redundant, these submarines, by the time we even get them. And so I just, I find that quite interesting. Um, and so I just sort of think that, you know, is is this really something um, that that Australia actually needs to invest all this money in, um, mm-hmm. for all this extra controversy? Um, but again, that's kind of a separate issue um, to the, the ban treaty, because again, under the ban treaty, nuclear propulsion is, um, is fine. And that was Dr. Monique Cormier, who is Senior Lecturer at Monash Faculty of Law, talking about AUKUS's use of a loophole in the Non-Proliferation Treaty and whether Australia would sign the Nuclear Bans Treaty. She has also published an article in the New Matilda on this issue, which will be put on in our show notes if you want to read more. We are now going to a song called Never Never by Shirley Bassey. I'd like to run away from you But if you never found me I would die I'd like to break the chains you put around me But I know I never will You stay away and all I do is wonder Why the hell I wait for you But when did common sense prevail For lovers when we knew it never Treat me like you should So what's the good of loving As I do Although you always laugh at love Nothing else would be Good enough for you Impossible to live with you
And that was Welsh singer Shirley Bassey with Never Never There. Now, a note to our listeners, the following interview contains content which may, be, which may be distressing and includes references to suicide and drugs. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be aware that the segment mentions people who have died. If this does not feel right for you, you may be able to turn this off for the next 15 to 20 minutes. Rob, from 3CR's Strong Spirit Show, spoke with Keen Mundine, who is a principal consultant and founder of Deadly Connections, an organisation that brings family and community together to better support individual, individuals. Keen, after losing both his parents and being separated from his brothers at the age of seven, found himself living on the streets and turning to crime to survive. This piece is an extract of the podcast, which was broadcast on the 11th of September, 2023. And if you want to listen more, go to 3cr.org and search for Strong Listen, Strong Spirit. Hello, and welcome to this first instalment of Justice Matters, a podcast about the criminal justice system in general and the prison system in particular. I'm Rob Osborne, and I worked for many years in the New South Wales prison system. I've also had a professional career as a teacher and have a particular interest in prison education and its role in rehabilitation. Currently, there are approximately 42,000 prisoners in Australian jails, including those on remand and yet to be sentenced. A recent productivity report estimates the costs of incarcerating these people at just over $41 billion. Here in New South Wales, the number of prisoners has reached record levels, despite falling crime rates over the last 10 years. In future episodes, I will be looking at the reasons for this increase and the possible remedies. Both nationally and locally, the massive over-representation of Indigenous people in the prison population remains a shocking indictment of Australian society. Indigenous people make up about 2% of the overall population, but 28% of the prison population. My guest in this first episode is Keenan Mundine, 
an Indigenous man with direct experience of being imprisoned in both the juvenile justice and adult prison systems. I first met Keenan several years ago in the Compulsory Drug Treatment Correctional Centre at Park Lee, west of Sydney. Since then, he has become a campaigner for Indigenous people caught up in the justice system and a vocal advocate for prison reform. Hi, Keenan. Hi, Rob. And how do you describe yourselves these days? I describe myself as the uh, principal consultant and co-owner of Inside Out Aboriginal Justice Consultancy. I see. Well, let's start at the beginning then. Can you tell me about where you were born and brought up? Yeah, no worries. Um, firstly, before I continue, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and people out there listening. I grew up in Redfern, in the Aboriginal community of Redfern in, in, in Sydney in the early 90s. A lot of people that grew up in my community at that time would also agree with me and, and know that my community was, you know, struggling. My community at that time had, had, a, had a lot of issues with police and drugs and alcohol and crime and basically what most of these um, poor, poor communities suffer from today. And what about school, primary school? What was that like for you? I remember not much about my primary school because of you know the trauma and the stuff that I went through. All I remember is I went to Redfern Primary School. And what were your earliest engagements or encounters with the juvenile justice system? I think from from my first contact with police about 14, 15, just for larceny and, and stealing from shops, hats and shirts and basic stuff, crimes that are more common in poor socioeconomical communities and underprivileged people. And relatively trivial. Yes. And then since then began that vicious cycle of not really understanding my position and the decisions I was making and how big it's going to impact me as an adult. You know, being a young delinquent or as they labelled it at that time, I wasn't really thinking about my future. I was just thinking about my immediate needs, which, you know, I was homeless. I had no clothes. I had no food. That was my first contact with the police. And then because of the tricky circumstances around my, my, my guardianship and who was responsible for me, that made the, the system a lot more trickier because I had no parents, no support, no money, no accommodation sometimes. It made my battle and my journey through the system a lot more difficult than I seen other people that were in the same position as me. And did you spend periods of detention in the juvenile justice system? From the time I got charged from the police for my first encounter, I spent a lot of time in the boys' home, in and out. Do you have friends from that period? I actually met a lot of other Indigenous boys from other communities, Campbelltown, Macquarie Fields, Penrith, Mandrua, all across the state that were similar circumstances to me coming from poor communities, you know, with poor ed education and poor resources and poor role models and all of the people that I initiated a reciprocation of any sort of friendship with progressed on into adult incarceration together. So most of those boys I hung around and I have photos of in my house or in my luggage at home 
being in Reby as a 14, 15 year old boy in Cobham as a 15, 16 year old boy and Frank Baxter as a 17, 18 year old boy. Most of those boys are now still in jail and serving out big sentences. And your own first experience in the adult prison system, where and when was that? 2005, I can tell you right now. I turned 18 in Frank Baxter and, and it wasn't a party. I um, actually spent my 15th, 17th and 18th birthday locked up in the boys' home. And I remember I was getting out, turned 18 in March. I was getting out, I think, in about May. So I had two months left and I was thinking, what am I going to do? What's going on? And... You know, at that time, Redfern, man, was still popping off and, you know, drugs was still happening and violence. It was the crime hotspot. That was my last sentence as a juvenile. And I remember before I went in, that's when they, um, one of a good friend of mine got chased by police and lost his life to it. And they had a riot in Redfern. And, yeah, I went to the boys' home and came out after I turned 18 back to the community and just wasn't the same. Boys that I hung around and run with at that time, the mood just wasn't the same. The, the light was gone. It was real now. This is it. We're just going to die in this and this is our life. This is what we've got to look forward to. I got out and I just fell straight back into it. I had no way of getting a job, no way of getting an education. I had no support. You know, I didn't even go to my juvenile justice appointment. I don't even remember any of my juvenile justice sort of caseworkers that I had to have in contact with in the community. And then I went back to prison, man. In August or something for a few months, I got out and I was just trapped in this vicious world of drugs. It was just doom and gloom, drugs, crime. Everyone around me was selling drugs, taking drugs, breaking the law, stealing. Like not one person had a job and I was right in it. I went back to prison, man, Boxing Day 2005, and I got out Christmas Day 2009, and the cycle continued and continued. But for me, going to prison as an 18-year-old boy, I think just cemented the hopelessness of my future. And then to go to jail and spend four years in prison after just losing my mate, having a big riot, like... I started having little reality checks along the way and I think it was little wake-up calls, you know, this is going to be me and I think that was me thinking all along. I, did, I never asked for the life, this life I was given. I didn't ask to be born into a community that, you know, had all of this going on, man. So I ended up back in prison and I had the opportunity to do an alternative program around what's going on and what I've been through, man. Just looking back over the experiences in the adult prison system, Corrective Services Mission Statement has a commitment to rehabilitation. What was your experience in terms of being rehabilitated? I think no one can deny that, that that's their mission statement. It's out there. It's in their policies. What we need to understand, not just as people involved in the criminal justice system, but out here, how many people are in prison? How big is this line to be rehabilitated? How many people do you have in there to rehabilitate these people? Who are they? Are they the best people to be able to rehabilitate these people? How long has this been going on? These are the questions we need to ask as a nation. How long has you've been rehabilitating? You know, what's working, what's not working? If it's not working, why are we still doing it? What can be done better and what could be doing differently? But my experience, man, I spent three years on remand pleading not guilty, fighting my case because of the system here in New South Wales and the way in which they house inmates on remand. I had no access to rehabilitation. They have no priority to rehabilitate remand 
prisoners at that time. What about education classes? In terms of education, that was sort of the last thing on my mind. I'm fighting for my freedom to get out of jail. And that's where we also need to understand, you know, there are people in there that are not guilty. And I was on remand, so I'm deemed not guilty. But because of the nature of my offences and my criminal record and my lack of support, no one could bail me out. And there was no presumption of bail because of my juvenile record. You mentioned the trajectory, the life direction of friends from juvenile detention and the fact that many of them are actually in prison. What made the difference for you? What was the point at which you made a decision? I think, like I said, the decision was made a long time ago as a little boy. I didn't ask for these things and this experience and this life. What I am asking for now is a new life. This might be hard for people to understand, but because of the chaotic lifestyle in which I lived in the community I came from, prison and the boys' home for me was a retreat from that madness. I didn't have no one to protect me, to cover my eyes, to block my ears. I had to take this all in from a young kid. I had to watch this world that people, you know, most commonly out there don't get to experience until they leave their household with the skills to be able to understand what's going on. So I had to process this all by myself, unsupported, unguided. I had to untangle all of these webs and intricate things about world and life and how to conduct myself. And for me, my escape was going back to isolation, as they call it. I had no distractions. I had access to drugs and alcohol. I turned 30 and I spent more than half of my life in institutions, in handcuffs, in courtrooms, in transit buses, being moved from centres to centres. And I'd done more travelling in the back of a car as an inmate and a detainee than I did as a free person. You mentioned going to the CDTCC, which is the Compulsory Drug Treatment Correctional Centre. What was different about that? For me, I was already on the journey of self-discovery and the therapeutic aspect of it and the resilience and skills I needed to survive the life I lived, man. I went through it, I'd done it. I knew that I had the skills and I had the tools and I had the ability to be able to make the right choices given the resources. I had to use this facility to find what those resources were and what they looked like and who are they and how I could use them. That laid the foundation for me to walk out into the community to now say no to drugs, to say no to crime, to go home at night, to know that I've worked hard, you know, and my house is, is, is a place of peace and happiness and joy. I don't want to escape my house and hang out on the street like a young kid because most of the young kids that are out there and from the communities that understand very well where I come from, they find it very difficult and challenging to stay at home because of what's happening and unfolding in that household. You found a way to leave that kind of life behind you and to forge a new type of existence. But what needs to change in the system so that other prisoners can follow that same route? What needs to change in the prison is that everyone deserves a second chance. Some people may take credit for helping me to get to where I am. They play a part in giving me a platform and opening a door and showing me something totally different to what I'm used to, which I took to build my own consultancy from a lived experience point of view. And the reason why I did it is because these guys that tried to support me weren't in the best position to support me. 
I work with non-Indigenous organisations that put their core values first over communities and families and people. I found that very difficult given the struggle I came from. I still ha have involvements with the criminal justice system because of my record. I've had a hell of a fight with the, working with, with the Office of the Children's Guard, Guardian for the last two years, which I successfully won, unsupported only by my wife and a nameless believer in me who actually paid out of their pocket a solicitor a flight for me. A lady who came into contact with me in Bajura Court and she um, worked for ALS at the time and she's now a partner in a law firm in the city. I have a working with children's check. Man, I just finished my parole. What needs to change, man, is we need to work together and fight this fight and, and know that whatever issues are happening out there in whatever respective communities, Indigenous or not, these communities know what's going on because they live there and they see it all day, every day. They don't get to clock off at five o'clock and, you know, go home and that's it. The problem, the issue is not going to happen. They live it, they breathe it. Let's engage these people who live the experience. Let's involve these people in forums and discussions, these communities, and give them the resources and, and let them walk this journey together. Do you mean bring people from the community into the prison system in some way? The prison system and the jails, they remove people from their own communities and ship them in between these jails, depending on their classification and their risk and their service level of intervention, but not understanding that they have to go back to their certain communities. And now, who do they go to for support when they get out? Where is that support? What does it look like? I've built my organisation and my company, like I said, to be able to be in a position to have a consultancy, so anybody who wants to reach out. I want to build programs for these people, awareness tools to know where the support is, what it looks like for females, male offenders, juveniles, adults. And that was uh, that was uh, Rob from Strong Spirit speaking with Kean Mundine, who's a principal consultant and founder of Deadly Connections. The piece is an extract from the podcast, which, which is broadcasted on 11th of September 2023. The talk show... Uh, explained why First Nations self-determination is important. Self-determination self means different things to different people. The United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples describes self-determination as the ability for Indigenous people to freely determine their political status and pursue their economic, social and cultural development. It also describes self-determination as a right that relates to groups of people, not individuals. If you like it, go to 3cr.org.au and search for Strong Spirit and listen to the show. Um, you can listen to Strong Spirit on Mondays from 1pm to 2pm. If you want to speak to someone uh, someone about any issues that were mentioned in the interview, you can always contact Lifeline on 131114. And for mob-only support, you can call 13YARN139276. And for LGQI listeners, you may also listen to Contact Q Life on 1-800-184-527 between 3pm and midnight, or visit qlife.org.au. We now go to a song called Mojo. I 
And that was Native Tongue by Mojo. Now, a Senate inquiry into regional bank closures is heading to the New South Wales Riverina town of Junee to hear findings from residents and community leaders as the town was on the verge of losing their bank. From 2021, 1,600 bank branches have closed across Australia, with almost 170 bank branches have shut since the beginning of 2021 in Victoria alone. Westpac has closed the most branches, 32 in Melbourne and 11 in regional Victoria. The company also closed 43 Bank of Melbourne branches, communities across the state and are looking to Bendigo Bank or other community banks to fill the void. 
In New South Wales and ACT alone, it has seen 147 branches close in the last two years. We'll now be on the line with the Mayor of Junee, Neil Smith, who was in the was successful in halting the closure of their bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and will speak to us now. Neil, how are you going this morning? I'm very well, Patrick. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, Neil, the inquiry is making its trip uh, to Junee. It's been across the WA recently and comes across to the great town of Junee. What, firstly, what are you hoping? What are you hoping from the the findings that you'll hear tomorrow? Well, I've always been a fairly positive person, Patrick, and and I know our town will be um, standing behind us very strongly. I'm expecting a large crowd at the inquiry tomorrow morning. Um, but look, I'm still advocating for for the the big four to to really get a, a moral compass and start valuing their clients a little more than their shareholders. I'd really be uh, aiming to see banks uh, remaining open and hats off to the Commonwealth Bank because since the inquiry was announced and uh, Junie Shire made some pretty strong representations and got some media attention, the Commonwealth Bank have said that they're not going to close any branches nationally uh, before 2026. So I think they have an opportunity to be the shining light lead the way, and in my view, they should be reopening reopening some of the banks' branches that have been closed. Like Some of these small communities uh, really uh, do suffer without the, their local bank. So yeah. that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah. Um, I'm aiming high, but, uh, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Yes, very true. Uh, Neil, just for those listeners out there wondering where Junee is, just give give people a perspective of how of where it is in New South Wales. I guess in travelling time, we're about an hour and a half to two hours north of Albury, the border town. So uh, pretty well directly north of Albury and half an hour north of Wagga Wagga. So uh, Wagga, as we refer to it, is is our uh, major centre and that's where we would have to go to uh, to do our, our um, banking. Uh, the banks are have been for many years offering a thing called Bank at Post, which is go to the post office to do your banking. And mm. basically it's just a, a withdrawal and deposit facility, but there's a limit on, on, the, on the, the amount of money that can be taken or withdrawn. So that, that impact, particularly I think on, on sporting groups, uh, businesses, tourist attractions that operate on the weekend and still take a lot of cash. And, and the disadvantage, of course, there is that uh, they will now have to drive that cash to uh, the larger centre or use, uh, you know, uh, a security firm. Mm. Uh, if they use their, their own staff to do that, that's two people. Uh, a round trip to Wagga is about one hour, yeah. plus, let's say, half an hour by the time you park the vehicle and, and walk it down the street to the bank. That's not going to be particularly safe. Uh, and then, you know, potentially longer lines waiting at the bank in the, in the larger regional centre. So, you know, that's three hours down the tubes. You multiply that by the number of charity sporting groups and businesses that operate on weekends, and that, that's a lot of money that's going uh, down the tubes, let alone the danger of, of transporting it that way. So not good. Mm. Um, I guess there's also a perspective or a perception that um, uh, businesses uh, and residents looking to relocate to, uh, you know, a, a town such as Junee or any other um, smaller country town um, 
may choose not to because there's no bank in you know, banking presence, I should mm, say. Mm, yeah. So you know we have a, a concern there, and of course the other thing is the the impact on the aged and the disadvantaged. Um, you know, many people, particularly older people, a visit to the banks a social opportunity, much as a, a visit to the supermarket is. So, uh, but there's also a risk I see where um, uh, people who on, uh, rely on a on a passbook and hard copy to keep an eye on where, where their funds are up to um, will never be able to uh, use internet uh, facilities. So they would be then trusting, say, a trusted friend or or relative with their PIN number to go down to the bank and get some. Uh, down to the bank at post to get some cash and, and not be able to keep track of where their funds are up to. Uh, so, you know, I could see a lot of people t- being taken advantage of in that regard. Yes. Uh, for those wondering, the hearing uh, will be occurring tomorrow uh, from 9.45am to 3pm at the Juni X Service Memorial Club. Um, so uh, if you want to go along, you can. Uh, Neil, what's your thoughts of the other banks' opinion? I saw Tamora and Gundagai have lost their National Australia Bank branches as well, That and the and the Mayor Tamora was quite outspoken on that. Are you concerned that regional Australia is, is being left behind and these small towns like yourself is getting lost in in a world of digitalisation? No doubt about it. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's the digital age that is, uh, shaping us, and we're losing our our social um, skills. I think, Patrick, and mm. so I'd really like to see a, a halt to this. You know, in small towns, we we do interact uh, a lot with each other. In fact, if you've got a, a couple of minutes, I've I've moulded a, a poem I wrote some time ago, which <laughs> kind of puts it together. Would you be happy to? Yes, I'm ha- I'm happy with that one, Neil. Chuck it away. All right, give me a moment, and I'll tell you of a paradise here on earth. It's a place that I've been, and some of you may have seen. It's a heavenly dream of great worth. Now, this place that I speak of is friendly. It's a place of smiles and grins wide, where the people you greet as you stroll down the street speak with community pride. It's a place where you're watched out and cared for, where good turns occur every day, where positive praise and helping hand ways make this just the best place to stay. Here, kids can ride their bikes freely. Their friends are all close at hand. Freedom and space abound in this place, while the face-to-face banking is just grand. Where people above shareholders are valued, where it's not just profits we respect, where disadvantaged and elderly matter, where nobody suffers neglect. For me, this place that I speak of, the place that I'll always be, is a small country town in Australia on the Olympic Highway, Junee. Now, the last point I'll make before finishing is the name of the place matters not. Any country town where the folk wear no frown in Australia is a bloody good spot. It's our attitude that makes the difference. Value people, have some insight. I implore banks, think of our clients and our country and wherever we live will be just right. Oh, I love that, Neil. Well done. Bravo. I love that. Um, that's that's a great poem and a great uh, metaphor in the way of how important it is uh, for the banks. You know, uh, the argument is if you don't have a pub, you don't have a bank, uh, Neil, the, the town unfortunately shuts and um, it, it's something that we, we hope that can keep uh, rolling on. Do you also feel that the the member for the Riverina, Michael McCormack, and given he given the given the Liberal government were in power for almost 
you know, 10 years, Neil, and I know Michael's, Michael has been a strong helper in the space of trying to make sure that the, the community gets what it wants. I know it's a tricky space for him to, to deal with, given the fact that you got to deal with, in, in when they were in power, they also had to deal with many factors. Do you feel that there could have been an opportunity that they could have halted these type of um, closures we've seen of, of, of bank branches in their time of power? Yeah, certainly it would seem this this isn't the first inquiry into banking yeah. in Australia, and there was only a report last year from the last inquiry, which um, was uh, very much a whitewash. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a, a little disappointed, but I must say uh, on this round, um, and with my associations with uh, Michael McCormack, he has very much um, led the fray and uh, some other um, terrific federal MPs as well who uh, uh, Matt Canavan, I think, comes to mind. And I think this time it's gone to a different uh, parliamentary committee who are more focused specifically on regional issues. So, mm. so I'm much more encouraged. The terms of reference for this inquiry are very uh, much focused on people as well as uh, profits. So so look, I think I think we've got a real chance here this time, Patrick. And, and you know, I will take my hat off to Michael McCormack because he's he's railed against the banks a number of times in Parliament. Uh, you know, in the last six months or so. Yeah. So fingers crossed, Patrick. That's all we can say. We'll keep fighting the good fight. Definitely. Also, Neil, um, you did um, uh, also. You, are you? Is there a bit of a uh, rumor going on that you will be finishing up as mayor of Juni soon? Is is that the case? Yes. In fact, um, I handed over the baton last night at the council meeting, Patrick. So I'm I'm no longer the mayor, mate. Um, but I've, they've, the council's um, asked me to continue to represent them uh, on this matter of um, regional bank closures. Yeah, and what's that going to look like, Neil? Are you going to take take a step back from that, and then and then also um, wait to see what happens from the findings, which will I think are going to be pushed back to next year? Uh, now, as I reported uh, yesterday, right. Well, that's news to me, Patrick. Yeah. Um, yeah, originally the results of the inquiry are supposed to be heard early December, but so it's uh, yeah. Look, I'll I'll certainly be I'll still be here championing the cause. Um, no doubt about that, Patrick. Uh, yeah, it was well, only. Um, uh, so, sorry, uh, cut you off there, Neil. Yes, it was only broken yesterday that they announced that those findings were going to be pushed back to next year. So I think they're, I think they're definitely looking into more towns that have been impacted. Um, as I said at the top, there's been over a thousand bank branches closed across Australia, not just in um, the Riverina region. It's 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 an impacting everywhere um, across oh, it's Australia. Astounding. It is astounding. Um, mm. You know, uh, just to for your listeners' uh, information, how to give an idea of how ludicrous this is. Um, we council, uh, well, I convened a, a teleconference with uh, councils around Australia earlier this year um, to talk about the issue, and we had representatives from Cooper Pedy. Now, as most of your listeners will know, Cooper Pedy is a place that's uh, quite remote. Um, they have great opal capital, you mm. could say, and I would imagine their their economy runs um, pretty healthily on cash, I would think, and their last bank was closing. They would have to go, as I was told during the teleconference, they would have to go 550 kilometres to Port Pirie to do their cash banking. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah, jeez. That, that's, that's what, that's five, what's that, almost a three-day trip, Neil? Oh, mate, I mean... <laughs> 
I imagine you're probably looking for an excuse to get to a big centre occasionally, but that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I just shake my head sometimes, Patrick. Mm. I mean, th- these are such ill-considered decisions sometimes, and mm. and there seems to be a level of arrogance with the banks. There's a an Australian banking protocol which they must um, stick with, and which requires consultation with the community before closing. If they're more than a certain distance from a large centre, then uh, the, the period of notice is six months before they can physically close a bank. Uh, now, the Commonwealth gave us three months' notice, and, and that was just a phone call to me uh, off the cuff one afternoon midweek oh, yeah. um, without having written to anybody or consulted with anybody. And so, so with a, they operate outside this protocol. It has no teeth, and, uh, you know, we really need to sort that, that matter out as well. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of hairs on the system at the moment, Patrick. There really is. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Neil, um, I'll say congrats from all of us at 3CR with your great work in the town of June. I'll keep it up and uh, we'll be looking at this uh, inquiry closely uh, throughout the months and what the findings will come out of June. So thanks very much for your time and uh, we'll speak in the future. Thank you, Patrick, and I'll be very much look forward to talking to your listeners again. Good man. Thank you very much. That was uh, now former Mayor of Juni, uh, Neil Smith, discussing all things regional bank closures as a Senate inquiry. We'll head to the small Riverina town to discuss this issue. Uh, we're now going to go to a song.
And that was We Have Survived by No Fix Address. Sinera, we're running out of time. The show's over. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. Um, hopefully, we'll be back next week with some more content and hopefully um, Claudia will be back as well. Yeah, I, I hear that uh, uh, she's slowly coming back from WA, Sinera, mm. so slowly mm-hmm. coming back. So, Claudia... Hopefully, you'll be on, on your uh, radio next week. If you want to catch up on the show, you can. You go to 3cr.org.au, go to podcasts, go to Wednesday Breakfast, and you can listen back to all the shows uh, and hear all our great content. And also, download the Community Radio Plus app, uh, and you can listen to 3CR wherever you are. Well, that's all for the show today. Have a lovely day, and goodbye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.